Our scripture reading this morning is found in Ephesians 1, 1 through 14. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to some ship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished upon us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and earth under Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to be to put our hopes in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. And you were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, this gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promise of Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are in God's possession to the praise of his glory. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. Happy Father's Day to those of you who are fathers. And uh, I guess you could say that back, yeah. But no, don't worry about it. Um, I'm talking uh, today, we're gonna be jumping into the book of Ephesians for the summer um, and looking through this book, and we'll talk a little bit about that this morning. Uh, One of the first lessons I learned from my father was how to swear. Uh, my mom tells the story, I don't remember this, but my dad wasn't always a Christian man, and especially when I was younger, and so about the age of two, uh, my dad was working on the TV set in the living room, and it was the old you know, black and white TV set with, you had to take off the back cover, and I don't know if some of you remember putting the tubes in and out, and you had to switch everything out. That was when you actually had to get up and change the channel. We didn't have remotes back. Back in my day, we had to walk uphill in the snow both ways, and we didn't have remote controls. Okay. <laughs> so, and so he was fixed a TV set, and he, he was obviously having choice words with the TV set. So uh, it was either later that day or the next day, my mom heard me banging on the TV set in the living room, and she went in to investigate and she said I had a toy plastic hammer that had obviously been given as a toy, and I was banging on the TV set and swearing. <laughs> so, you know, they say as a parent, you know, this is a life lesson here, it, some things are caught more than taught. Have you ever heard that, right? That, that I, what I had caught from my dad was how to bang on things and swear. That's what I had learned at the age of two, right? And so happy Father's Day, Dad, <laughs> um, who's watching probably online. So uh, he'll, he'll get a kick out of that. But I think about that, you know, as parents, we often think about what, it, what are we teaching our children, what are we saying to our children, and then what are we actually exemplifying for our children? And we certainly want to walk the walk and not just talk the talk. 
But I also found that as a parent, there was sometimes not only that I need to walk the walk and have my children walk the walk, but sometimes I had to have a talk about the walk. Have you ever, you know what I'm saying, parent? Any parents here? Can I get a witness here this morning? That means that I got to say to my kids, you know, here's why we walk this way. <laughs> so it's not enough just to sh- tell them to behave and just say, because I said so, although I sometimes have said that as a father, but sometimes I have to stop and I have to talk to them and explain to them the reason why we behave that way. You know, for example, uh, you know, don't touch the stove. Well, why? <laughs> you know, do you ever explain to your children why you don't touch? Because if you just say, don't touch the stove, they won't understand that there's actually a moral reason not to touch the stove. There's a reason not to touch it because you will get hurt, it will harm you, it will burn you. So that's just a very simple example. But there are times we have to give a talk about the walk or the behavior. Today in the book of Ephesians, the whole book of Ephesians, you actually have Paul doing two things. He's giving us a talk and then he's gonna teach us how to walk. So the first three chapters of Ephesians, chapters one through three is about the talk. It's like Paul is having a talk with the church. And then chapters three through uh, four through six are about the walk, how we're to walk as Christians. And so that's that's Ephesians right there. We can all go home, right? All right, good. Life lesson learned. We can go home. Nah, I got a little bit more to say, sorry. But let's jump in here. If you brought a Bible with you today, this summer we're gonna be studying this book. And so if you wanna bring a Bible, if you wanna take notes, it's a good time to take notes on some things. We're gonna be jumping in. I'm not gonna work through verse through verse, but we are gonna jump in right at the beginning here. So if you wanna turn there, and then we're gonna look at some things in this chapter this morning, if you have that with you. But the very first verse uh, is this verse where Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so one of the things that I find in this is that these people are referred to as holy people. Or the other way to translate is saints. That these are saints. Now what is going on here is that these people aren't already made, aren't already perfected in a sense or haven't been made holy. They're not saints. They've been given sainthood by the Catholic church. But what is happening here is that in, from God's perspective, and that's what we're going to learn about the rest of this chapter, from God's perspective, they are saints. From God's perspective, they are holy. And you realize that as you read the rest of this chapter. The other thing to point out here is that it refers to Ephesus. Now, it may or may not have been written to Ephesus. It may have been written to many churches around Ephesus because some of the earliest manuscripts actually don't refer to Ephesus. Now, let me just stop there. Does anybody, does every, who doesn't, be, be honest here, does anybody not understand what I just said about early manuscripts? Because I realize that sometimes we don't always understand how we got the Bible, right? So when we say we got a manuscript, that's a copy. And we don't have the original letter that Paul wrote, but we have lots of copies of it throughout the centuries. And we can look at those copies and we can say, okay, in these copies this is said, in these copies this is said. So in the earlier copies, the the city of Ephesus is not mentioned, but in a lot of the other copies it is. And so the majority of texts support it, or the majority of copies have it, so that's why I say that. Everybody good now? All right, again, it's a little bit of teaching here. Take some notes, leave it with you, right, okay? So... That's what's going on here. Now, a little bit more about Ephesus, uh, so you know a little bit about this city. 
And because, and it will make sense. He's like, you're gonna go, why is he telling us this stuff? It makes sense as we go through the, the book. So first thing you need to know about Ephesus is that it was a city on the coast of what we now know as Turkey. If you look at the map, you can kind of see where Ephesus was. It was a harbor city. It was a Roman city. It was not necessarily a Jewish city. It was a Roman city. It was uh, governed by the Roman Empire. And this letter is written not only to Jewish Christians, but also to what we call Gentile Christians or Roman citizens or people of other nations. It had a theater in it, so it was uh, popular because it had a huge theater. It also had a coliseum. What would a coliseum be used for? Come on, somebody had to have seen the movie. What kind of sports? Gladiators, right. So gladiators would have fought there in the Colosseum in Ephesus. Um, the other thing they had was they had a library, large library there for education. And the other thing that's probably most important about the city of Ephesus is that it held the great temple of Artemis. Now Artemis was a goddess, a goddess, the goddess of creation or the goddess of nature. I, I kind of, the best simple way to think of Artemis is like the mother nature, right? And so mother nature was worshiped, Artemis. And so don't think summer solstice parade, by the way, that's not what we're talking about. That's not what happened. Uh, I caught a little bit of that yesterday. Um, that's a whole nother story. So yeah, I'm not gonna go there. All right, so all you need to know is that nature was worshiped in this temple, right? And the other thing is, is that one of the things that happened in Ephesus was that um, Paul was there earlier before he wrote this letter, and when he was there, he had, been, he had been sharing the gospel with people, and people were converting to Christianity and leaving the temple of Artemis. So it actually caused a riot in the city of Ephesus because the silversmiths, the artisans who were making shrines to Artemis, were losing business. So the businessmen, the, the, the silversmiths, the artisans in the community started a riot against Paul and Paul's followers and it actually happened in the theater in Ephesus and a riot erupted and Paul, that was time Paul's cue to get out of town. So think about that. So this is what kind of the cultural, I, what's going on culturally in Ephesus and this letter is going to this city. And then the other thing to know about Ephesus is it's later mentioned in the Bible in the book of Revelation as one of the seven churches, if you know that book, and Ephesus is the church that John writes to uh, probably 30, 35 years later and says, you've lost your first love. And so he talks to them about that. So that's later in Ephesus. So what you need to know, so that's everything you need to know about Ephesus, that's everything you need to know about the first couple of verses. Now, verses three through 14, chapter one. Look at that for a second. That's one sentence in Greek. One sentence, not multiple sentences. So you have to keep that in mind when you understand this, is that's one sentence, because Paul liked to talk. In fact, one time, somebody fell asleep while he was preaching and fell out a window and died. And it says in the text that he was going on and on. And uh, so that's one, and you get that when you read his sentences. He just keeps running on with the sentences. And so we've got that. So I'm not gonna work through all these verses together, but I wanna pull out a few themes out of verses uh, three, uh, three through 14. A couple themes here. One, I want you to look at, just glance real quickly at verse three, verse five, and verse 13. Verse three, verse five, and verse 13. Those three verses, just take a quick glance at them. Because here, out of these three verses, you can see 
we get something, a theme, called that we call in the church the Trinity. Can you see that? What do you see in verse three? Those of you who are looking at verse three, what, what part of the Trinity is mentioned there? God the Father, right? In ver- the next verse is God the Son. Yeah, you with me still? And then verse 13, what is mentioned in verse 13? God the Holy Spirit. Just check and see if you're with me. So God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. This is what we call the Trinity. The Trinity is never mentioned in any of the Bible. No, that word's not used in the Bible but it's a way we use, it's a concept we use to describe these three persons in one. We just sang about that in the hymn that we sang, Holy, 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 that God is three in one, that there are three persons in one. So we believe in the oneness of God, but manifest in these three persons. God the Father or the parent. Now Paul's not necessarily saying that God is male. We also know that Paul saw God as neither male nor female, but what he is doing, he's writing into a culture that where the father and the son, everything in that culture revolved around those identities within the family. And so Paul is using these identifications as he writes to the people about this. So then there's Jesus the son, right? The son, and we'll understand that a little bit more. This is important to what we're gonna talk about next. So the sonship that creates us and is, comes into our world and helps us to be sons and daughters. Notice that we're included in an inheritance. Again, this is that language of the culture that the father is the patriarch, then passes on his inheritance to his sons. In that culture, it would have only been passed on to the sons, not to the daughters. And so everything would have gone to the sons. So we become included in that inheritance. I would say brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ. And then the Holy Spirit is actually the deposit of that inheritance, right? So he actually uses that word deposit. So the Holy Spirit is deposited in us. And it is that Holy Spirit that works within us that helps us to live out the family of God. Again, this is all gonna make sense in a few minutes. Because the other key theme here that reflects not only community and trinity is really the family of God. So what we're actually seeing is that there's a family here, in a sense. Not necessarily a, a family as we understand it, but God, three persons in one. There's a, a community happening here. And what Paul goes on to write about here is adoption. Because you and I, when we receive and believe in Jesus Christ, we are adopted into this community. We're adopted into it. That's the word that Paul uses, is adoption. And so our understanding of Trinity actually sees, helps us to see this community in which we are adopted into that God, the parent, Jesus, our, the son or our brother, and also the Holy Spirit, which identifies us and reminds us that we are part of this family, that we're connected to this family. So all this goes together. Now, all of this is done, and you'll see this in the text. One other thing I wanna say about this, in Christ, Paul uses this phrase actually in the Greek 11 times. You can see it seven times in the chapter, in Christ. This all happens, this all occurs, this all is evidence because it's in Christ, Jesus. That's what makes it happen. That's who makes it happen. Our, uh, my sister and brother-in-law adopted a little girl from China a, few couple, about a, a little over a year ago. Her name's Emma. And you can see her on the swing here. She's a cute, cute cutie in my book, and uh, she, I love her smile. Now, her parents actually chose to go adopt her. 
They chose to, they, they were sent a, her profile and they made a decision. They said, we're gonna choose to adopt this child. Then they flew to China and spent two weeks going through the, to the orphanage to, to, to greet her and to receive her and then go through the adoption, the legal process in China, and then to bring her back to the United States. So they went through this adoption process. And one of the things we see reflected in this chapter is this idea that God chose us and God adopted us. And so a lot of times we think of this adoption from this kind of point of view that a parent's choosing to go adopt a child. Now, Emma, did Emma have any say in this whatsoever? No. She had no say in this. She just went along, <laughs> you know? She didn't have a choice in this. So she just came and she was a part of this family. Now, it was a very good thing that happened to her in a lot of ways um, because she was living in an orphanage for some time. But I want you to think about that because that's how we often interpret adoption from this text. But what I would suggest to you is that's not how Paul is writing. In fact, that's not how the Romans understood adoption. Because adoption in the Roman world was more in the vein of not a, a parent, older adult parent adopting a child, but it was a parent, uh, uh, an heir, a patriarch adopting an adult son. Think about that. That's different, isn't it? Because in Roman culture, if, if a male did not have an heir in his family, no son, because of the patriarchal society, because of the system, which I don't have time to explain, but that system is that you had to have a son to pass on your inheritance to, to pass on everything you had and all your, to provide for your family. You had to actually go through that male heir to make sure that your whole family was provided for. So what happens here is that a, a man without a, a son to pass on his wealth to, pass on his estate to, would choose an adult heir. Now that could have been a servant in his household, could have been a slave in his household, could have been another relative in his family, but he would have gone to that adult male and said, I want you to be my heir. Now do you think that adult heir had a say in that? Think about it. A child has no voice in that process. But in the Roman adoption system, you actually as an adult would have said, oh yeah, that sounds like a good idea. Or you could have said, I looked at your land, I looked at your estate, you're in debt, I'm not taking it, right? You know? I mean, you could have had, you, had, you were part of the decision process. Why am I saying this? Because one of the things that a lot of times we see in this is what we call predestination. That a lot of times we interpret that this idea that God chose us and predestined us to this. But in the system of Roman system adoption, it gives us a little bit different nuance on how we look at it. There's a part on our part, which is where our Wesleyan, Arminian ways, what we call free will comes into play, where we actually have to choose and we make a response to this offer of inheritance, to this offer. Do you see how that works? And so in my mind, I'm a, I come from that background, what I call Arminian theology, where I would say that we also have to respond to this lavish grace that is given to us, this inheritance in Christ that is offered to us. Whereas my niece, Emma, didn't have that choice, you and I do have that response and that choice and that decision to make as well. And so it's interesting because the other side of this is what's called Calvinistic theology, and Calvin preached 48 sermons on the book of Ephesians. I wonder why. Chapter one, probably. So we look at it a little bit differently from a Wesleyan point of view, and uh, we've debated this for a couple millennia as well. So here's Pastor Matt's take on 
predestination versus free will. Because I'm not gonna solve it here this morning. I'm not gonna try and solve it, right? But here's my take on it. Here's my simplistic view of it. From God's point of view, if I were in God's seat, if I were in God's point of view, from God's point of view, God chose me, right? From God's point of view, God foreknew that I would make that choice. God knew that before I was even born, before the creation, in fact, Paul says that, before creation was even created, God knew and foreknew those who would make that response, right? So that's God's point of view. You have to think about God sitting outside of time and space and before all creation, yet God has got the long view. But from my point of view, I made the choice, right? From a human standpoint, from a human viewpoint, there was a point where I had to respond to this grace. I had to respond to this offer. I had to accept the offer, just as in a Roman adoption system, I as an adult male heir would have had to respond and receive this. Make sense? All right, good. Because my question for you this morning is this. Do you believe you're adopted by God? Do you believe that you are adopted by God into God's family? Think about it. Is that something that you believe? Because it will indicate, because if you do believe that or don't believe that, I hope you do believe it, because God has offered it to you and to me. But I think about this, this has profound significance about who I am. This has profound significance for my identity. Think about it. If I am adopted into God's family, if I am a son or daughter of the most high God, if we are, how does that change our identity and who we are? My daughter went to Liberty University in Lynchburg, Virginia. Anybody ever heard of Liberty University? Um, The president's been in the news quite a bit since the election. His name is Dr. Jerry Falwell. So my daughter decided to go to Liberty University uh, her freshman year of college, and she made that choice to go there. And one of the reasons that she wanted to go there was not because of politics or Dr. Jerry Falwell, but she wanted to go there because she felt that this this place was a Christian community, that she wanted to be a part of a Christian community and join in this Christian community, and she was hopeful that this Christian community could help her to be Christian, to develop her faith. She was looking for spiritual formation. She went through her first semester, and after her first semester, she came back and, you know, I could tell there was some uneasiness and not everything was going as expected. And so we knew that there was, she was questioning why she was at Liberty. And then the next uh, semester, that semester's there on the East Coast, not quarters. In the next semester, she went back, and then about halfway through the semester, she informed us that she was not returning in the fall. She was not going back to Liberty. And of course, as a parent, I'm going, we just got through this. We just got you established. We just kicked you out of the house. We have our empty nest now. What are you talking about? And uh, so we sat down and we were having a discussion. And one of the things that my daughter said to me that I was very proud that she said to me, um, and I can only speak for myself, is she said to me, Dad, they're not helping me to be a Christian. They want me to be a Republican, but I'm not sure, so, so sure they want me to be a Christian. Now, I'm not making a political statement here. This was during the campaign year for the president, right? So you have to keep that in mind. But what it made me, why I was, was I proud of my daughter? 
because she was saying my Christian faith is more important to me than my political affiliation. My identity in Christ is more important to me than my political affiliation. (laughs) That's why I'm proud. And she got it right. She got her identity in priority order, right? She said, my identity as a Christian is important to me, Dad, and I don't think this place is gonna help me in that. And so I thought to myself, this is great. You know, because she was clear about her identity. Again, I'm not making a political statement at all about, I, I, know, I know that you can be a Democrat or Republican, but the question is, where is your identity in Christ, right? So that's the important thing. Now, think about that. If my identity is in Christ and I am in God's family, if I am adopted into the family of God, think about this. That changes the way I live then, doesn't it? When Emma came, my niece came from China, she spoke, she spoke Mandarin, or she knew Mandarin. She, didn't, you know, she knew Mandarin. She didn't know English. She ate food that was offered to her in the orphanage. She didn't eat the food that my brother-in-law and sister-in-law offered her. She lived and behaved in an environment that she was taught to live and behave in, but when she came to this new family, her language changed. Her diet changed. The way her behavior began to be shaped and formed and molded in a different way. And that doesn't mean that she doesn't have some other behavior she's still holding on to, but as she came into the family, she had to learn these new ways and become a part of this new family and things changed for her. When you and I are adopted by God, we too are a part of a new family. We eat differently, we speak differently, we behave differently, we treat each other differently, we respond to each other differently. I imagine that life in my brother-in-law and sister-in-law's family is very different than life in an orphanage. Very different. And very much, I would hope and say, better than life in the orphanage. She has a better life. She has a family that is loving her and accepting her and she's a part of and she will be unconditionally loved for the rest of her life. And that's what Paul says in verse seven. In fact, if you're gonna memorize a verse this week, I'd encourage you to do a memory verse. This is, well, every week we'll have a memory verse. The memory verse this week is this. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of what? Of God's grace that he lavished on us. Let's all read that together. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. I love that image of lavishness. If you've been a parent, you know what this is about, right? You know what it is to lavish love and grace on your kids. I find that parents will do, mothers and fathers will do whatever they need to do to take care and unconditionally love their children, adopted or biological. They will lavish love on their children. They will lavish grace on their children because that's what a good parent does. And that's what Paul is reflecting in this family of God, in this adoption, is that God's grace is lavished upon us. The story I think about in the Bible, which is my favorite story, so that's why I go there, is the story of what's called the prodigal son. Now, I want you to notice something about the prodigal son story. I won't go into all of it, but it's a great example of lavish grace. Because the son, he's taken his father's inheritance, he's squandered it all away. Basically, when he took his father's inheritance, he was disowning his family. He was, in a sense, divorcing his family. 
and he was no longer gonna be a son anymore in that family. He basically said, I am cutting all legal ties. I am cutting all ties with my family and I'm gonna go live my own life. I'm gonna choose my own way. Then he gets to this point where he's in the pigsty and he's reflecting and he's actually comes to himself, it says. He comes to his senses and he says, I'm gonna return home. But I want you to notice something about when he decides to return home, he is, this is an identity issue for him. Because he goes home and he's thinking, I can go to my dad's house. I can't be restored to be a son anymore. I, there's no way that, God, that my father is ever gonna make me a son again. I will go ask if I can be a servant in my dad's house. Identity. He went back home, expect, not expecting, but actually asking and requesting to be a servant in his father's house. That's important. He wasn't asking to be a son. He wasn't asking to be a daughter. He wasn't asking to be included in the family again. This is so important in this story. So his identity that he is trying to wrestle with, he's saying, I'll be, I'm no longer a son. I've lost, notice this language, I've lost my identity as son. His picture was on the milk carton, right? Missing son. He was lost and what was lost was his sonship. What you and I have lost in our relationship with God to the family of God is we have lost our sonship, our daughtership because of sin and brokenness in our life. Now, when he gets back home, he says to dad, make me a servant in your household. Let me be this. And what does his father, what does his father do? He says, he doesn't even listen to the request. Does not even listen to the request. What does the father do? He, he lavishes grace upon his son. He gets a robe and he puts it on him, a sign of forgiveness and grace, a sign of sonship. He gets a signet ring, the family seal, and puts it on his hand, a sign of sonship. He takes sandals. Servants didn't wear sandals. He puts sandals on his feet and he says, you're a son again. Your identity is my son. You were lost and you're found. You were divorced from us and you've been restored to the family. That's grace. That's lavish grace. So when I ask you the question, do you believe you're adopted? That's what we're talking about. Do you see your identity in Christ, in the family of God? Because I believe that God's design for you and for me, that you and I were created in the image of God, and we will not find our true identity until we're back in the family of God, adopted sons and daughters of the Most High God. Let's pray together. God, we come to you today, and uh, we've learned a lot. We've gotten a lot of information, but most of all, we wanna know that we're your sons and daughters, that you created us in your image and that we will find our true selves, our true identity when we find ourselves in Christ, when we find ourselves in your family, when we find ourselves in your community, that God, our true selves come out the way that you designed us to be, the way that you designed us to live, created us to be.
So Lord, we, we confess that we've lost our identity as sons and daughters. We forget sometimes that you love us unconditionally, lavishly with your grace and that you simply ask us to respond to it. And so Lord, we pray that you'd pour out your Holy Spirit in us, that deposit guaranteeing and sealing our inheritance that you would pour out your Holy Spirit on us and on these gifts of bread and cup, that as we come to this table of grace this morning that is so lavished on us, that we would respond with thanks and gratitude, that we would know that we have been forgiven, that we've been redeemed, that we've been restored to the family of God. So may this day be the day that we're restored to you, God. And we pray together as you've taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.